Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. I'm your host, Terry Yuan, and this series of episodes on beauty and lifestyle is sponsored by Masami, a premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu, with the ultimate in botanical hydration. Masami is good for you with no bad ingredients and is vegan and cruelty-free. Masami's ultra-hydrating formula leaves your hair healthy, shiny, and manageable. Be sure to follow Engendered Podcast on social media to learn about the Masami Travel Pack Giveaway, their Makabu-infused shampoo, conditioner, styling cream, and shine serum. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Erica Gerritz, a former executive at Frank Body who started her own brand, Fluff, two years ago. We speak with Erica today about her journey as a founder of Fluff, an ethical beauty brand based in Melbourne. We also speak with Erica about the state of the beauty industry and the ways in which beauty, lifestyle, and consumption intersect to shape girls' and women's views of ourselves, our bodies, and impact our relationships. Welcome, Erica. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to start with your childhood. When was the first time you wore makeup, and did you? I have a memory of always playing with my mum's makeup, actually, and it's particularly her lipsticks, which is funny because I never wear lipstick now, and it just feels like the last thing I would ever grab. But I remember being fascinated with them and also her blue Clinique eyeshadows that were in those like little green sliding cases. And I think for me, more than anything, it was just a fascination with this idea of maybe being older and a woman and something that I obviously wasn't and aspired to be. And saw my mum having this ritual of getting ready every day and transforming herself, whether it was dramatically or not. And it was just something that I thought was quite magical. And I can remember sort of trying on her makeup when she wasn't there because I knew where it was and probably ruining a few lipsticks in the process. Um, But that was my first memory around makeup. And my mum never wore a lot. Uh, To be honest, I think it was just those few products she had, some eyeshadows and some lipsticks. And then my sort of experience or relationship with makeup after that has been an interesting one. It hasn't changed that much. I've never been that obsessed with beauty or makeup, which is, you know, interesting where I find myself in terms of career now. But I'm more obsessed with the quality of packaging and them as something that you have around your home and in your life as opposed to the actual process of application, which I find quite tedious. And how old were you again when you first remembered observing your mom in her makeup routine? I think I would have to have been maybe four or five. And when did you start actually using it? And was there any kind of prohibition against using it before a certain age in your family? No, for me, when I was younger, makeup was always, it was this playful thing. And if my mom let me use her lipstick, she just thought it was kind of cute. There was something that we could share. I still do believe that makeup or beauty is a rite of passage for Many girls, it's something they watch their mum doing, it's something they can share together. I also remember that my dad loved watching us kind of play with makeup and he would always let us put makeup on him because we used to pretend that we had a beauty salon. 
but my mum was always working and my dad was often home looking after us. So he would be our one customer who would pay us a couple of dollars and he'd let us put terrible eyeshadow and lipstick on him and he'd look ridiculous. But he, I think he loved it and because it was just so playful and so harmless and, you know, we were only ever putting one or two products on us. There was never any foundation products or, or usage trying to look older or trying to look sexy or anything. It was just, it was a game almost. Were there other women in your family? I'm guessing you didn't sound like you have sisters. So I actually have a twin sister. Oh, and, okay. Yes, and then I have an older brother. And so my sister was around and she, we would have this little beauty salon together actually. And we would like, paint each other's nails too. It was nice. It was a fun experience. She was probably less into it than I was. Are you fraternal or um, identical twins? We're fraternal. Okay. We're very, very different. Okay. And was there any kind of competition in terms of how, not necessarily makeup, but how you expressed yourself with one another through your looks? Yeah. So I would never say there was, but Rowie and I chat about this a lot now and she says that she always felt a sense of competition between us both in terms of our appearance and then academically and with our friendship group which is really interesting um and especially like reflecting on it now but you know she was she is a lot taller than me she has brown hair i'm shorter with like blonde curly hair i've got blue eyes she's got kind of greeny brown and she always used to joke that I got all the good genes and I always just thought it was a joke until you know sort of probably only recently we would discuss that she really did feel um this kind of distance between us um and, it, and it's hard I think when you're not an identical twin you don't feel as much pressure or comparison but obviously for one twin it can still be there did makeup have any role during your journey into puberty and throughout? Definitely. I mean, I think as soon as we got into probably primary school and high school, you start playing with different products and seeing what your friends have. And there is always someone at school who starts wearing makeup before everyone else. I definitely wasn't that person, but would have been looking at these girls and, and just being curious. I would say that I am a curious person across the board. And then obviously knowing what makeup was, advising my mum use it, wanted to know what kind of makeup I could have. And the probably the products that I recall using the most is wanting mascara to make my eyelashes longer, a lip balm or lip gloss because it's just what everyone used every day and they were really cheap um, lip balms that everyone could buy that were affordable for young girls. And then a, a bronzer kind of worked its way into all of our sort of friendship groups or some kind of tanning product where everyone just wanted to look like they had a little bit more color or sun. Was it unusual at the time when you, were, when you were growing up for young girls to be able to access the money to purchase makeup? I don't think so. I mean, it was, it was really affordable back then. I mean, it, they weren't good quality products, that's for sure, but you could probably save up and buy for $10 or $15 an eyeshadow palette and a couple of lip glosses. And again, makeup was so much more playful. We weren't applying it every day to go out and to be seen. It was something that often happened behind closed doors that we were just doing amongst friends 
which is what's been so interesting for me, seeing how that has changed over the years. And what role did fashion play when you were growing up? Again, I think I was very conscious of what I wore, but it felt like it came from just my desire and curiosity as opposed to being told by um, one particular authority or feeling like I had to dress a certain way. I mean, we still had similar influences. You know, we were looking at magazines all the time and what celebrities were wearing um, or people in music bands and, and pop bands. But that was, it again felt so much more playful and there was much more a sense of my individuality. And I always say, like, I dressed just so ridiculously and it was all mismatched and I would wear floral leggings and, you know, star print tops and and tutus out or there was no sense of like I'm trying to be someone for someone else it was I would wake up and be like I want to put on some pink lipstick for me because it's fun and I want to wear that skirt because it's fun not ever really I was never conscious of thinking about how I would look to other people. It sounds like when you were growing up makeup and fashion's role in your life was mainly as a uh, starting point really for discovering as you as your website says for helping you figure yourself out and being a point of departure for understanding yourself and yet that differs very dramatically from how the fashion industry and beauty industry now is which is about conformity Mm -hmm. how did you transition from where you were when you were younger to becoming a beauty executive I still ask myself that every second day, probably. I think, <laughs> yeah, so it was a very natural progression. And my background is in writing and marketing. And I feel that's still how I reference myself or my career. And I studied journalism and has always been really interested in writing about people and understanding how they think and how that influences what they do. And I, can apply that to being in the beauty industry now because I'm obsessed with why people think what they do and how that influences why they buy what they buy. And, you know, marketing in the beauty industry has been around for decades. Our mothers and our grandmothers were influenced or probably targeted in a much more aggressive way than we were. I find it so interesting to look back on beauty ads from the 40s, 50s, 60s, like it's fascinating the way we spoke to women and that is a lot more, um, I guess, it's not as in our face right now. That messaging is much more visual um, but the, the message is still kind of loud and clear around wearing makeup to please someone else or to be better than you are but the more you have on, the more you are worth and that realisation kind of, has come about over the last couple of years Um, and I think starting fluff I've become more and more aware of it so in the beginning I really wanted to create a beauty brand that was more responsible because I had a few issues with the beauty industry and the more research we did the more we realized that our issues were really valid and that they were a lot deeper than we initially thought and that they were shared by so many young girls and women and men that it was yeah it was something that a lot of people weren't talking about simply because no one had put their hand up and said I have an issue with this or I have a different narrative or opinion. So when you talk about research are you talking about the time 
after you decided to create fluff or while you were still at Frank Body? I mean, this the research has really happened over the last, I would say, seven or eight years. So with my background in writing, I first had a writing agency in which we were working for so many different brands and especially in the beauty and fashion industry. And we were really focused on this millennial consumer, so anyone between, say, 18 to 35 years old. And, again, just became so obsessed with why they were doing what they were doing and why they were buying what they were buying and then how they were showing themselves off on social media and presenting themselves to the rest of the world. And the more I looked into it, the more I was like, I have to understand these people. Like there's my idea of who they are and then there's who they think they are. And Frank Body was our first sort of case study for our own brand within this writing agency for us to take a product that we had come up with ourselves and then have no restrictions in terms of marketing budget or marketing ideas. And that was quite successful. And we did a fair bit of research with our customer there, but nowhere near as much as we did when we were building Fluff because we were then focused on this Gen Z consumer who is very different. Uh, How did those perspectives differ? What your idea was and what, what you found in your research? Well, so the reason that I spent about two years talking to girls within this 13 to 22-year-old age bracket, trying to understand, I guess, the biggest difference is how social media has changed the way that they think and then communicate with each other, which is on a whole other playing field. What we realized is that they're so much more critical of brands and products because there's been so many since they were born put in front of their face. They are skeptical of the messages that brands are putting out there and they sort of come at it with this negative view or that people are just trying to sell to them and that brands don't really care. So straight away you have a lot more work to do in terms of earning the trust of these consumers. They, they're so much more open to individuality and people expressing themselves how they see fit as compared to a millennial who are still very um, they, um, judgmental and, and not open to differences. So you're comparing the centennials with the millennials and basically you found that you can characterize them as being more desiring of expressing their individuality as opposed to millennials, would you say, who are more interested in conforming? Definitely. I think that the Gen Zs feel like they don't have to be told what to do, that they can say no or stand up for that. And they want everyone around them to be themselves. One of a really nice distinction is that millennials want to be seen having fun, whereas Gen Z just want to have fun. And I think we see this play out a lot on the differences in social media and even between millennial and Gen Z influencers as well. Was this information that you found Australian consumers or was it internationally? So across the board, this was a finding that this generation of young people had these similar characteristics. We definitely focused on Australian consumers. However, we did speak to a few users in the States and in Europe. Um, but for us to actually be able to have one-on-one time um, with consumers in Australia, um, that was really beneficial. And that's what we found is that we spent maybe three to five hours with each girl before we felt like 
they really trusted us to open up and then be able to tell us what their issues were and what they what they wanted to see change. And so that's a lot of time that you have to invest in these individuals to really get out of them what they're so wanting to tell. And a lot of people as a start, like they, because they've had so many different messages put in front of them. Well, one of the biggest things we do at Fluff is and we constantly have girls coming in and reviewing the brand and giving us feedback, especially on our social media channels. And some of the feedback they'll provide will be very one-dimensional, I guess, or they'll just say, I don't like this, or perhaps you should shift to this aesthetic direction, for example. And when we ask them why or why they like a certain colour or why they like a certain aesthetic, they often can't answer us. And that's one of the biggest questions we then ask them. Like, why do you like the things you like? Is it because you truly do or is it because you've been told to like something or because it's familiar and you've just seen it everywhere else, which is what we're really trying to foster, I think, in this especially younger audience but in older audience as well is this idea that you can decide things for yourself and then make purchasing decisions based on what you really want, not what you feel like you've been told to want. And when you dig a little deeper, do you sense that there's a consciousness around how they've come to acquire these consumer habits and and preferences? Definitely. I mean, we, we can look at whether it is social media or whether it is print advertising from decades ago. We are continually told one or few specific messages from several industries, whether it's beauty, whether it's fashion or other, around consumption. And usually it is that the more you have the more you should feel worth, which I think is a little bit backwards. Like you should just start with that worth. And it becomes an interesting, difficult conversation for us and for me particularly because at the end of the day we are a brand that is selling goods, but we we hope that we're a more responsible brand that is making people think about their purchasing decisions and buy fewer, better products. You know, the best decision we could all make is probably not to consume at all, but that would be crazy. And then we'd also be denying the fact that makeup is fun and it allows us to express ourselves. We don't want to fight that or take away from that. We just want to go back to where it was a little bit more playful and innocent and not centered around conformity. The beauty industry globally is worth more than $500 billion and it's growing. Mm -hmm. Where does fluff fit into that space? So we would like to consider ourselves as a separate or new category called casual cosmetics, which I think there are a few other brands that could also be within that. We like to say that our approach is, is casual, just as you wear casual clothes and you feel more comfortable in them and feel like yourself. With cosmetics and skincare where it is not complicated, there's no fuss, it's just you at your best feeling like yourself. That's the category that we feel like we fit into and that does go across cosmetics and skincare. We do find that skincare is growing more, especially as consumers are trying to understand, I guess, maybe why they're covering up and if there is a choice to wear less if they deal with their skin first, which is nice. But for us, fluff is so much more than makeup and that's our strongest message that we've developed is that beauty is more than makeup which then begs the question well what is it and that's why we exist because we want to discuss that with our audience the future 
So you're trying to disrupt the beauty industry, but also redefine it at the same time. Yeah, and it's a backwards business model, right? Because we're telling we're a cosmetics company and telling girls to wear less, and we're using social media to tell them to stop spending so much time on their phones comparing themselves, which means that it's a much, much longer play for us. Whereas you have so many other beauty brands that can pumping out product after product, and again, just trying to get girls and guys to wear more and more, we're saying, stop, maybe wear less. Maybe you can have fewer, better products in your makeup bag that you have for a lot longer time that allows you to transition more easily from wearing no makeup to wearing a little bit of makeup to the then one day where you choose to wear a lot, but you're not comparing yourself on each of those occasions. So you're kind of parallel to the sustainable fashion industry as well, a play in collaborating yeah. with those brands. Yeah, I hope so, definitely. And, and I also see in the horizon fitness and food and lifestyle. <laughs> so why we're called fluff is because we would say that makeup is great, but it's not necessary. It is the additional stuff. Um, it should never really define who you are. It can make you feel a little prettier, sure, but it, it is new at the end of the day. We should all be able to stand comfortably without makeup and say, makeup doesn't make me what my face doesn't make me who I am. So that's kind of the message that we want to put out there, but we don't want to put it out there from you know, an activist point of view either, like we're trying to have fun and actually make beauty fun again as opposed to make it feel so oppressive, even though it isn't in, in the sort of outwardly way. It is subliminally and we've seen that when we've spoken to so many girls and women and men, like I see women my age who have been affected and can't leave the house without makeup and young girls feeling like they have to own specific products. It should be a choice we make, not something that we feel like we have to do. Well, I think you hit on a lot of very good points. It is oppressive, I think, for a lot of people who are gender non-conforming and don't want to express their themselves through femininity. It reminds me of, have you seen the documentary Misrepresentation? I haven't. No. Okay, so it's highly recommended. It's a two-part series. The other one is called The Mask You Live In. It's about how masculinity is constructed and misrepresentation is about mm -hmm. how femininity is constructed in society. And one of the most interesting parts of the documentary was when they talked about the cultural creation of the 1950s stay-at-home mom and the Cleaver. Betty, was her name Betty Cleaver? I forgot. I have to look mm -hmm. out later. Betty Cleaver character, right? That it was intentionally created in order to help women adjust and transition out of working after the end of the Second World War. And all of a sudden, you know, like almost overnight, millions of women um, maybe tens of thousands, I don't remember, hundreds of thousands of women were transitioned from employed to unemployed. And in order to make them feel worthwhile and have meaning in their lives, that's when they started selling appliances and, and this concept of the, the housewife at home baking and cooking and, and all of that. And so makeup was a big part of it. And it's so interesting that that part of our narrative, our cultural narrative, is absent to all of us. We just think it's natural that we should have yeah. makeup. And yet we don't know the history behind how it's iterations. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what we have, we have really been exploring. And again, when I say to you, I was never 
obsessed with beauty in that this has been a big learning process for me as well. And we started with that question and we asked that. We said, why do you wear makeup? And it's funny because everyone answers it quite simply in the beginning because we've never had to question it. We just say, oh, well, we like it. It makes me feel good. It's, it's nice. And then we'll ask them, well, why does it make you feel good? Why do you think it's nice? And you end up, we have a lot of long silences with people because we end up in this spot where we're like, I don't know why I like it. I guess I've just been told. And then that's when you have this realisation of like, oh, I, you sort of see where this all came from. And then in turn you see that you have a choice to keep going that way and can it move from this tool of oppression to something of freedom or, or of expression. But it's hard because when you ask that question, it can be quite confronting with people because people don't want to admit that they perhaps have been a part of um, some form of oppression without even knowing. And because it doesn't seem quite explicit in any way because it's been so subtle and slow, it doesn't feel like it's something we potentially should rebel against or question. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I see a lot of this in, so, in um, Facebook groups. I'm a part of a lot of women's groups and divorced women's groups and single mom groups. And there's such a strong sentiment across all of them that their worth is partly defined by how they look still, right? And some of the older yeah. ones in particular, I would say maybe baby boomers, they're, you, they would just never even imagine that they could wake up and not put on makeup every day. I know. It's crazy. That kind of pressure is interesting how it's been diluted, you know, down to the present generation and how we've girls today have been able, at least the ones that you're interviewing in Australia, I think they're probably more woke than the American, um, their American yeah. counterparts. They're able to resist. Yeah. I mean, well, the thing is there are definitely sections of people who can resist. And for some reason, this sort of dialogue just hasn't even entered their mindset or their experience. Or perhaps it's just um, a product of their environment and how they were raised. But in Australia, definitely, there is still a huge percentage of a population who are heavily influenced by traditional beauty standards. And that is what I really feel like we are fighting or at war against, even though that can sound very extreme, that we don't want girls to have to feel that they have to wear a full face of makeup every morning when they get up or even go to school. We don't want girls to feel embarrassed if they bump into someone on the street without makeup on and feel like they look bad. That should never be the case. I've experienced that feeling before and I feel very fortunate that it didn't last that long. But this is something that people face every day. And the fact that women or girls or guys ever have to apologise for not wearing makeup or not feeling like they are appropriately kept is crazy. So your website says that fluff exists to help girls figure themselves out and realize that it's just all fluff anyway. And so beyond being a product company and a brand, it sounds like you're also like a social impact company in a way. And I'm wondering when you were trying to raise money for your initial rounds, what kind of response did you get from potential investors? Yeah, I got quite a mixed response because, and I probably could definitely have more conviction when I am speaking about fluff social impact. And I think I struggle with it because I 
have to follow it up with, but I am still selling product. But I think I'm getting more and more confident in saying that these products are just a vehicle for our message that is that it's all fluff and in building this awareness with girls around the products that they consume, that it's okay. We're not saying don't be a part of that world. It's fun, but it's just having that little bit more awareness about how and why and what you use. So when we pitched this to investors, there were some people that got it straight away. I found that particularly mothers and fathers or men and women who had daughters and who could relate, who, especially within this age group, who saw their daughters on their phones so much and saw what they were looking at, particularly in the beauty industry, our message really resonated with them because they felt helpless in a way in terms of how do they tell their daughter that they don't need that makeup and that they're beautiful when every single image that they're looking on social media might tell them otherwise. So they were really in support of what we were doing. Then there were people who I think were probably more focused on the business model and so saw this as too long a play for them to invest. And that is a problem we have, I think, across many industries, especially with VC funding, is that they want to return in two to four years, whereas for us it has to be at minimum five or seven years probably before we see the impact that we're having and that trickling down because we're fighting, I think, a message that has been put out for decades and that is going to take time. That is, it requires us finding a small group of people first who understand our message and then who want to carry it and then for that to trickle down to sort of mainstream audiences. So, yeah, it's been interesting and still even as the brand is out there and getting support from different people, um, the response that investors have. Some people want it to grow quicker. Some people understand that it's going to be slow and then it's just a choice for them about what they want to invest in. What's the vision for future products or partnerships? So for Fluff, I mean, our product rollout, or the company itself is split into three parts. And one, we have the makeup or makeup and skincare, which we don't want to expand into hundreds of SKUs. That just doesn't make sense for us. We want to stick to this category of casual cosmetics. So nothing that ever really changes or uh, the appearance of the user's face or makes them conform to one certain ideal. So we say we have a foundation of products without a foundation product and that's our sort of commitment that we'll never release a full coverage foundation product. We don't believe that is necessary and that that's one of the biggest problems within, I guess, the makeup portfolio in terms of putting out this one um, specific look. It really it covers any form of individuality, whether that's freckles, scarring, um, skin discoloration, which we really want users to embrace and not feel like they have to cover up. So our whole kind of product philosophy is around discovering, not covering. Uh, in addition, sorry, no, go on. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. That's all right. And we also really want customers to realize that they, again, have been told to just use more and more products and to have a 10 to 20-step skincare routine, which we think is just really silly. You know, we're kind of born as we are and ageing is something that we cannot (laughs) change or control to some extent. And it's better to be so much more aware of the ingredients that you're putting on your skin and to keep it simple. 
So that's sort of our philosophy. It's like how do we maintain our like business and keep doing what we're doing and spreading the message whilst not just pumping out products um, month after month, which we see so many beauty brands doing and their quality decreasing, um, especially around packaging as they try to lower their their costs to make more profit. So we our kind of we also had a, a really big commitment across our cosmetics to have better packaging options. So our kind of bronzer compact and our lip oil compacts are made from this weighted metal called Xanax where we did a lot of research and we wanted to bring makeup items that felt like jewellery, like Echo Times that people valued and wanted to hold on to and wanted to put on their dresser and felt proud to own. And in line with that, we've made all of our packaging refillable, which is sort of our commitment or where we're starting at in terms of sustainability because there's so much to do there. We are not perfect. We have a, a long way to go, but we're trying to do, I guess, take things one step at a time. So that is our kind of product like aims, but we also have stuff which we put under our kind of um, Bluff brand, which is other items of which Bluff can be in a, our customers' world. So whether that's a combination lock that they can have on their school locker, whether that is diaries, whether that's T-shirts, whether that's a magic eight ball, which is this toy that you can shake and ask questions. And again, just encouraging this idea of questioning and challenging the industry. Um, and then our, our last product is our digital platform or our editorial platform, which we call Issues. So we really feel like there is enough content out there around how to apply lip balm or the next five beauty products you should own. Whereas our Issues platform is all about discussing the thoughts and feelings of our customers. It's probably quite similar to something like Looking Mag, um, where it's all contributed to by our customers and not they don't even have to buy our product necessarily. It's just people who are engaged with the brand and have thoughts and feelings that they want to share about anything and everything. We will have really loose themes for a quarter, but really submissions are open because we believe that this is what's really beautiful about our audience is what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And we want to, I guess, provide a platform for them to share that, whereas no other brand would usually do that. So I know this sounds like a stretch, but are there any plans to actually measure the impact of issues and brands' impact on girls' self-esteem and self-image and relationships? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, definitely, but that's my biggest challenge right now is how do we measure that? At what point do we start measuring it? I like that for now we've been so focused on just creating something that feels genuine and authentic that these readers and writers trust and that they want to contribute to. And I think had we from the get-go maybe had some kind of analytic or system of measuring um, that content, it would have taken away from what we were doing. But it is something we would definitely like to build out as the issues platform grows. I mean, for me, I wanted to create a beauty brand that people could interact with without interacting with the products because um, that's a really sort of interesting thing right now in the beauty industry is that you either buy the products or you don't. And I wanted to find a way for girls and guys who don't necessarily want to wear makeup to want to be a part of fluff because it doesn't have to either either. But, you know, that they want to wear a beanie or a fluff T-shirt just because they love what we talk about or perhaps they write issues for us because 
they've got something to say, but we don't need to take something from them in terms of it doesn't need to be a monetary exchange. It can just be like you can contribute to this fluff world. The more people behind it, the better. And I want, especially, you know, in Australia, we have a smaller population of men wearing makeup, I would say, than the U.S., However, I really want men to be involved in our brand regardless of whether they wear our products or not. And that's what we're finding that guys and men are contributing issues and more guys and men are coming into our store to hang out and talk to us, not just because their girlfriend is there or their sister, but because they actually really like what Fluff is doing and they feel like they can be involved with the brand without having to buy the product. And that's a really nice kind of feeling. I think the last part of what you said, if I'm interpreting it correctly, is potentially fluff could take on an influencer role where you're helping to curate products that are aligned with your vision, products and other brands. I mean, and that's what I'm excited about is that, you know, if in five, seven years fluff doesn't sell makeup, that doesn't scare me. We really want to grow with our audience and let them tell us what fluff is. Mm-hmm. And that could change. We could we could go a lot heavier in merchandise or apparel if that's where it takes us. We just started with makeup as a vehicle because we knew it was a way to connect with girls, um, in particular. And that was my that was my experience, right? I had been a teenage girl, so I was starting with what I knew, what I wanted to change, and what I felt because I knew that there was probably a couple of other people who felt this. And it turns out there's more than a couple of other people. There's a lot of people who have this same underlying feeling of wanting change and wanting something different. I want to play a word or phrase association game with you. Sure. <laughs> I'm going to say something, and I'd love for you yes. to give me your the first word or phrase that comes to mind. Great. Masculinity. Okay, masculinity. I'm okay with it. Selfies. Terrible. <laughs> Girls? Wonderful. Beauty pageants? Scary. Plastic surgery? Not necessary. Meat? A choice. And finally, Kim Kardashian? <laughs> um, confused. Okay. <laughs> I was going to give you the option to not respond in case that made it a little bit no, um, that's fine. I'm a conflict. Word because I'd love to say a lot about Kim Kardashian, but would you be allowed to by your investors? Would that be something that yeah, they would find awesome. problematic? Oh, okay. Reference her in our um, initial investment doc. I mean, Kim has been quoted as saying at one point that she felt like beauty was going in a direction of less is more, and not so much about contouring, but just everyday natural makeup and. You know, it's it's tough because I think I can't argue with the people who would say that Kim has empowered or freed in terms of expressing themselves. You know, and I'd love to sit down with those people and chat to them for longer than five minutes for several hours and be like, okay, let's understand. Well, help me understand how she's made you feel better about yourself. And that would be really interesting for me to learn. But I think that her model appears to be or what I see it as is a model of consumption and excessive consumption and around products that are trying to make you look a certain way as opposed to feel a certain way. And I think that just because 
someone can create a brand or create products doesn't mean that you should. And there's a certain level of responsibility that comes with having a brand, especially a brand that influences younger generations who are still figuring themselves out, who are so impressionable. And that responsibility shouldn't be taken lightly. It's something that I go to sleep thinking about and wake up thinking about and constantly question myself as to what I am doing and would I be comfortable saying this or putting this message out to my daughter and what impact is this going to have on these young girls when they turn 30, when they turn 40, like how long will they carry this messaging, which again can feel really natural and subtle and you can laugh it off, but I don't think we realise or we don't know the impact that we're having. I think it was maybe a year, last Christmas, a year ago, um, Mm -hmm. she had a Christmas card with her daughter, oh, I can't remember her name now, North, (laughs) with her daughter North, Mm -hmm. uh, wearing, I think everybody was dressed in white and her daughter had bright red lipstick and I can't remember if she was three or four years old then. And I just had a very visceral reaction that, especially for a Christmas card, I thought this just reinforced the sexualization of girls and children. And I responded very negatively. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about makeup in that context for children. Yeah. I mean, and we see it everywhere. And I have that same reaction, you know, every second day when I see specific specific ads or content from specific influencers. It's really hard to deal with and to not react in a angry way to instead be like how can we provide an alternative narrative that allows people to slowly address these concerns or their own insecurities or their own feelings which they haven't maybe tapped into I mean what we can't ignore is like we have been selling makeup to children for decades it's actually not anything new you know when I was young I could buy little makeup kits from the toy store for like three-year-olds But it was a lot more playful. Again, it was glitter. It was like so harmless. Whereas now we have to ask ourselves, is this harmless or is there something kind of deeper and more sinister? And are we not giving especially young girls like the chance to be young girls and just walk outside the house without thinking about having to cover up? And what are we telling them about who they are in their natural state. Yeah, it's it's really concerning. Did you see the, I think it was in the past week or two, there was a Medium post by, I don't remember if it was a mom or a journalist. I think she, it was probably both, who pretended to be an 11-year-old girl. And she talked about just basically how many predators there were and how it just really opened up her eyes about the way mainly men on the internet respond to tween girls and how vulnerable they are. Yeah, but I mean, these teen girls look so much older, kind of crazy, and that's because, yeah, like it is amazing what makeup can do. And we're using makeup in the way that performance artists used to use makeup to really like change the way they look and to be somebody that they weren't. And that's what I think is really crazy, how this performance makeup has somehow transitioned into everyday like that's not what it was for it was stage makeup or for red carpet makeup where there were lights in your face all the time and so that's why we wore so much and now it's become acceptable to wear that out 
just in broad daylight and every day. And, you know, we can look at these images of girls and women from around the world who all look the same. I would, you know, it's a big call, but I would argue that we've created a, a new race and it's called Instagram. Like the Instagram girl and the Instagram face, we all know what that is. And the fact that cosmetic surgery and injectables and cosmetic tattling is just so commonplace now and from such a young age, it's really quite scary. It's not it's not it's not a trend that we can laugh back on and be like, oh, remember when I wore blue mascara in my hair or when I plucked my eyebrows too much. It's like we're making permanent changes to our faces and our bodies and the impact it has on our mental state is not good. Also the very act of just the name itself, injectables, it's a intrusion. It's a violation of our body and it's painful. Mm-hmm. Which is actually a really good segue into the end of our conversation, where we ask every guest a series of questions. The engendered questionnaire is something that I've adapted from the Inside the Actor Studio questionnaire. First question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? What is at stake? I think what is at stake is maybe our like history, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's something that people are so attached to the way that things have been. And if we disregard our past, some people will struggle with their identity and understand themselves. So there is this comfortability which is at stake perhaps initially. What gives you hope? Young people. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? We can approach discussions with the opposite sex uh, together and with a feeling of love, not hate. I think we can do more talking and way more listening and active listening and coming to the table, wanting to share each other's experience and learn from each other's experience and move forward together, not in isolation. Thank you, Erica, for being on our show. It was a pleasure talking with you. No worries. I hope I, these kind of conversations can always go into so many tangents and could go on for hours, especially when so many of these thoughts are still, you know, I'm still learning so much about how I feel about things and what my opinion is on it all, but I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Masami, the premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu for the ultimate in botanical hydration. You can find Masami online at lovemasami.com and share your hair at Love Masami Hair on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, or Twitter. And you can listen to this podcast on CastBox. Download it for free and listen to anything. CastBox, the best podcast listening app out there.